Hi, this is Benjamin Joff, partner at SOSV. We invest in early-stage startups with a focus on deep tech, ranging from cellular agriculture to neurotech and service robots. In this podcast, startup founders and investors tell us how innovation can go from lab to market. Robotics 10 years ago is different than now. I think COVID underscored the importance and the need for robotic systems. Now is the time. Robotics often brings images of giant factories or sci-fi dystopias. But what is the reality beyond the hype and fear? Fadi Saad is a former engineer who grew a passion for the cutting-edge technologies he saw at DARPA, NASA, the NSF and the Air Force. He then created Mass Robotics in Boston as a cluster, an escalator, to help robotics companies commercialize their innovations. In this conversation, we discussed the nature of robots, the power of complex systems and emerging properties, and the difficulty of finding viable business applications. We talk about trends in robotics, acquisitions, failures, the legacy of Willow Garage, and why we have a Roomba at home instead of a two-armed Rosie. We close with thoughts on how to apply the lean startup approach to robotics and what successful companies do beyond having great tech skills and raising capital. Fadi, great to have you today on the podcast. Hi, Ben. It's a real pleasure to be with you today. We've met a few times in Boston where you have your main office with uh, Mass Robotics. And I was really interested in having you on this podcast to discuss the broad view you have on what's going on in robotics in the US, around the world, and across different sectors. To get started, can you give a, a quick view about uh, what is Mass Robotics doing? And then we'll also talk about your background. Yeah, sure. Mass Robotics is not an incubator and it's not an accelerator. We are the first and the largest robotics escalator. And we see ourselves kind of complementing the traditional incubation and acceleration model. And really, we're trying to solve the problem in deep tech and, and more specifically in robotics on how you can move beyond the prototyping stage to a finished product stage. We do believe that incubators and accelerators have been doing a great job in moving entrepreneurs and companies from the ideation stage all the way to prototyping. And in deep tech, there is a, a unique chasm, as you are very familiar with, which is how you can move from the prototype to a finished product. So we created Mass Robotics to solve this problem of the double chasm, and it has been successful so far. We have 40,000 square feet of shared office and lab space in Boston. We have been leading a cluster of around 350 robotics companies in the New England area. We have close to 50 resident startups now and close to 40 strategic partners. Wow, that's a whole lot of people. And that's actually an incredible concentration of uh, robotics talent. The Boston ecosystem itself has been for a long time actually very active in robotics, isn't it? This is true. I think we have a, a legacy of uh, both developing cutting-edge robotics technology from top schools and research institutions like MIT, Harvard, WPI, Northeast, and UMass, Lowell, and, and Tufts, and amazing schools in the area, uh, but also commercializing these technologies. Successful companies like iRobot, Brooks Automation, Kiva, which later on acquired by Amazon became Amazon Robotics, and many others. So I think there is a legacy of not only robotics research, but robotics entrepreneurship in Massachusetts. And in my opinion, this is probably our strongest assets. And it's, it's really unfair advantage for other regions. 
but we are definitely grateful to be uh, in, in this region. What I found really interesting when I attended one of your showcases is that not only you had companies from the region, but you also had companies from other regions in the US, but also from other countries and basically using Boston and Mass Robotics platform as a springboard for them to connect to the global robotics ecosystem and also uh, regional investors and uh, business partners. That seems to have been a very successful approach. Yeah, this is very true, Ben. Our philosophy and our belief from the beginning is boundaries is something of the past. We are living in a world where everything is connected. Uh, a successful company in Denmark, like Universal Robot, got acquired by a Massachusetts-based company, Teradyne, an investor in the U.S. investing companies in South Korea, Japan, China, and other places. Anyone who still think of tribal and geographic kind of focus, I don't think it's a sustainable strategy. From the beginning, although that we have been obviously established in Massachusetts and the kind of um, concentration of our network is in the uh, Northeast and the New England area. From day one, uh, we had an international focus and our strategy had been open arms and open door policy for any company from any region, any country, if they want to seek mentorship, if they are looking for context to investors, if they're looking to get connected with our amazing network of strategic partners, companies like Mitsubishi, Electric, Analog Devices, Amazon Robotics, FedEx, Honda, all those amazing companies. We never say, no, you are not part of our ecosystem or you are not part of our resident group and we are not doing introductions. All of our team is very collaborative and have been helping companies and even inviting rising stars in the industry to come over and demo their technology. What brought you to start Mass Robotics? I'm a mechanical engineer by training. I went to the American University in Cairo. So I'm, I was born, raised and educated in Egypt. And I started my career in Egypt. I used to work for Siemens and later on for Nokia Siemens. And we were deploying large-scale telecommunication networks, very complex fiber optics, wired, wireless, microwave, you name it. And after doing this for eight years, I got tired of the corporate life and I decided to pursue my passion. And my passion was all about establishing and scaling companies. I have been a firm believer that a very effective approach to do that is taking a complex system uh, approach. I always perceive companies as complex systems. And I said, you know what, it would be great if I spent some time in my life and, and do a deep dive into complex systems and learn more about what does it mean to design, manage, scale uh, a complex system. And this led me to um, a very unique program at MIT called Systems Design and Management, which was a perfect fit for my passion. And it's a joint program between the Sloan School of Management and the School of Engineering. So I came to this program in 2011. Uh, basically, I quit my job. I was a regional manager in Nokia Siemens for a bunch of multi-million dollar accounts. But again, when you have the calling, you just follow it. So I went there. I had basically two years doing this deep dive. And this was amazing. It was transformational for me. I developed my own approach and framework around evaluating companies and, and scaling companies, built simulation model around that. And after I did that, I, I got recruited by um, a local company called Vecna. And uh, Vecna was doing cutting-edge robotics research with DARPA, Department of Defense Research Arm, the Air Force, National Science Foundation, NASA. So getting government research projects and grants, and I was basically the point person between all those agencies and the company. And it was a fascinating uh, time because I got exposed to some of the best technologies, things that were not commercialized yet. And what I quickly realized that billions of dollars spent in uh, developing upstream technology 
but actually very few of these technologies get commercialized. And this was very intriguing for me because I reflected back on the work I did at MIT. Would it be nice to develop a machine that can actually commercialize these technologies? And for me, this was the inspiration for mass robotics. And this kind of aligned with other interests in the ecosystem from deep technical folks and other entrepreneurs and, and cluster leaders. So we all came together as a team and we said, okay, let's build this together. And this was the inspiration for mass robotics. So complex systems, that would mean a system that has a lot of agents and moving parts and that all need each other to actually achieve results. Yeah, one of the interesting things that I learned about complex systems that there's something called emerging properties. And an emerging property is very hard to define. It's very hard to design. It's very hard to plan for. It's something that emerged from the interaction of lots of things. And I think innovation is one of those emerging properties. It's very hard in a company to design for innovation. You have an idea about the ingredients, but... It's like you cannot see the hive in just a single ant. Yes, exactly. On a side note, I think that many things in life are emerging properties, things like happiness, things like luck, things like love, all these kind of things. And it's the interaction of many, many players. I feel I want to do another podcast episode with you just on that. Amazing. I wouldn't mind. That leads also to this idea that you were trying to bring people together to have those emerging properties appear. And I'm thinking, because it's very uh, relevant to today, that this concentration of talent that you got people together from different companies and the advisors and corporates and investors all, all uh, in a concentrated way must be very difficult to do now. It was the COVID situation. Or you found another way to do it without being uh, in person? You're right. It's very hard to replace face-to-face in-person interaction, especially if you are just starting. You and I, we met before a couple of times. So if we have a phone call or a video call, we already have some sort of an established relationship. And I do think that video calls now, I mean, people still can build these relationships, but on a larger scale like mass robotics, I think we're very fortunate and blessed that we already had an established network. So what we needed to do is just to adapt. And our adaptation was basically, we converted everything into virtual events. We even had our first virtual demo day last April, and we tried to replicate the in-person experience. And, And one of the key, I would say, features of our demo days that it's basically an open floor each company they have their own booth and they do demos for our corporate partners and investors uh, so there is lots of one-on-one interaction which uh, has been a key feature of our demo days so what we did is we did a general session where each company did a short not even pitch but just introduction of what they are doing and then we planned separate kind of google hangouts so that if you want to meet one company kind of one-on-one, you can just join these breakout rooms. And it worked really nice, and we got lots of positive feedback. So we're planning to replicate this uh, experience in our second demo day in in November. That sounds like a really good approach. Uh, Obviously, we have similar challenges because we've run accelerator programs as entry points for all our investments. So almost all of them have gone entirely online. Most of the support on mentoring and connections, we can still handle well that way. But what's still hard to replicate for us is the interactions between the companies, between the startups and the serendipity of those connections that get established around a kitchen table, around a late night in the office, around just walking up to somebody's table to ask a question about some technology both of you are using. And that has been a bit harder to deal with at the moment. 
You are totally right. I think this is very true. There is lots of unplanned interaction that proved to be very critical in the, the life of entrepreneurs and, and startups. And even for me personally, I lacked this one-on-one interaction with the startups and the companies in our space. During the lockdown, we had to, to shut down for a couple of months, kind of part of the state uh, policy and regulation. But when we opened up, I made a point to at least go once or twice a week just to see the companies and have this uh, interaction. And it was phenomenal. Like you go there and people and you start chatting, how are things going? And then lots of updates. And then you remember another contact that you have and and all of that. So you're right. One idea that uh, we are experimenting with now is something called RoboCafe, which is some sort of uh, regular social time, basically, that we plan and people can join and just chat about anything they want. We have been trying to maximize more virtual uh, interaction points to just compensate for this unplanned interaction over lunch or in, in the hallways. But I think it just put a more kind of responsibility on the entrepreneurs, investors, and platform leaders that we need to make a conscious effort around making these connections because it's not happening uh, on its own. So entrepreneurs need to check on each other. They need to participate in these events they need to yeah basically try to increase these kind of touch points yeah it's challenging because it's hard to value that time clearly and a lot of it as you said being deliberate in creating this form of serendipity so it's a challenging time for that so i'd like now to dive into our main topic which is robotics and if possible we'll try to make it a bit into a crash course about what's going on in the robotics sector across different applications maybe to get started what goes into robotics for you when we start in mass robotics and like speaking with government officials and executives we frequently get the question what's a robot is a smartphone a robot is my laptop a robot is the car a robot And this actually made us uh, think very hard. And uh, I came to the conclusion that one of the easy way to define a robot, it's two things. It's actuation plus AI. So if you have something that moves, there is some sort of an actuation. But if there is no intelligence, this is just automation. So a conveyor belt, or if you have an arm that just do repetitive tasks, then it's just automation. But if you add the intelligence piece, which is being able to perceive the world around it, being able to make certain decisions, then we are speaking about robotics. As you might be aware, um, the whole space of autonomous mobile robots that have been growing in logistics, warehousing, and, and some manufacturing spaces. So these robots, they can navigate a facility basically on their own. They have sensors, they have cameras, they can perceive the environment, they can see humans, they can see obstacles, and they can avoid them. So they make decisions which route to do, when to stop. There is no pilot or operator behind these robots. Companies like Vecna, Six River, Fetch, all those companies uh, have been doing amazing stuff and have to a great level autonomous mobile robots. It's really interesting definition because most of the factory automation is repetitive things that don't include a, a whole lot of sensing. So most factory robots are actually not robots by that definition, isn't it? Yeah, it's industry standard that these are industrial automation, basically. So what's new now is people started adding intelligence to that. And the interesting thing is, if you add the actuation and you end up just having AI, so you're just doing software, right? Sometimes we get approached by people developing robotic process automation. 
which is an automation of activities that you do across multiple software platforms. Is this robotics? It has the name robotic, but in our definition, it's not the kind of deep tech robotics that we do. It might have application or it might be enabling for some robotics technologies, but I wouldn't classify them as robotics. That's why a mobile phone is not a robot. It's not covering all cases, but I think it captured at least 80, 90% of all the cases. And I found it very simple to explain to our partners, investors, and others. That means that most 3D printers, because they're not doing much sensing, they're not robots, for instance. Yeah, I think this is correct. And I've been speaking with a good friend, Dan Cara, who's leading the Robot Report and Robo Business, which is a leading publication around robotics. And I share his view that we shouldn't consider 3D printing as robotics. Unless there's lots of sensors in terms of sensing the printed material, the consumables, monitoring the work is having some sort of a closed feedback loop between the design and what's being printed to make sure it's compliant. But if it's just the 3D printing, we wouldn't classify it as a robot. So it falls on the borderline. In robotics, some robots in some sectors get a lot of airtime in the media and some don't. Those who are getting lots of it are obviously autonomous cars. Yeah. There's also these days logistic robots. And traditionally, uh, for many years, uh, probably as a legacy of science fiction, a lot of the humanoid robots. And actually, maybe starting with those, I have mixed feeling about them. What do you think about humanoid robots? I think sci-fi movies and novels contributed a lot in creating this passion for robotics. Many of us were inspired by some of these movies or novels that we read. But on the flip side, I think it distorted what we should be doing with the technology. And many people still obsessed with this human-like robot that will walk around and, and do the work for us, which is super difficult. It's super hard, super expensive to do, at least now. And as we have seen, many applications can be done without this form factor. One example is iRobot. They started doing robots for the defense and security space, and they found this niche space and vacuum cleaning, and they created a Roomba. Is the Roomba a human holding a broom and going around and cleaning the house? No, it's not. Roomba robot. Exactly. It's something else. So you change the form factor to make it as optimized as possible and as cheap as possible and as effective as possible too. And now iRobot is a vacuum cleaning company. Another example is all the autonomous mobile robots companies that we spoke about. Are they creating a human-like robot that will carry a box and, and move around in a warehouse? No. They created a form factor with wheels, screen, and sensors. So again, an optimized shape to move around in warehouse and so forth in manufacturing and other sectors. I've been looking at some of the history of those robots on the Willow Garage, PR2, and basically research robots that had two arms and could do all sorts of things like cleaning with a broom, actually. But that would cost $400,000. And now you can have a Roomba for less than the thousands of that. Exactly. And this is, again... Something that separates robotics research from robotics commercialization. Can we build a humanoid? Yeah, we can build a humanoid. Can we commercialize it? No, we cannot commercialize it now because it's very expensive. And this is what separates successful robotics entrepreneurs from just geeks and technologists is thinking about the market, the cost of production, the price and, and what the market can afford and, and whom you are competing with. And I think in mass robotics, this has been a key thing that we've been focusing on is educating robotics technologists and entrepreneurs about this key difference between 
technology development and technology commercialization. What I found really surprising is that uh, even among roboticists, sometimes the knowledge is not evenly understood. For instance, uh, in the recent conference, the veteran of the robotics industry, mostly doing space robotics, was asked whether there would be someday maybe a robot able to clean the toilets. And he said, sure, like we could build that, but that would be like half a million dollars. And as it turns out, there was actually a company we invested in called Somatic that created a robot that does just that, cleaning toilets. And they do it with a very uh, simple robotic arm. Uh, It's a wheeled vehicle and they have computer vision and they, they provide cleaning as a service particularly to offices or airports and facilities, and they created it for a fraction of that price. So it was really interesting to see that even what's possible is not evenly shared. You and your team are doing great work in terms of traveling across the whole world, finding those kind of companies who manage to commercialize technologies from the lab and in deep tech space. And it's not easy because not everyone, as you said, knows that those companies exist and and can realize the value that those companies can bring to the market. I have to say that I've been following what you have been doing with the team and it's just impressive. I'm, I'm not saying this because I'm, I am in your podcast, <laughs> but in my belief, I, I do have the very unique funds in the deep tech space. You and I, we have spoken a lot about some companies and different markets, different technologies, what's happening there. And I always have a huge respect for your view on the market. I have to say it takes a village to build any company, but even more so probably a robotics companies because it involves so many fields. But we've been consistently surprised by the innovative applications of the companies that come to us. And we've had some that really reached to high levels of success. Like one, for example, in Canada called the Avidbots that does the floor cleaning that now have over 100 staff and actually are doing very well during those COVID times because they can disinfect very large areas. Now, another one you might be familiar with is called Simbi Robotics and they do automated inventory in supermarkets. And what's interesting that they were ex-Willow Garage people we had also this vision of robots able to do everything. And it took them a while to actually narrow it down to one business application. And is this something you've seen also among your residents, maybe starting with technology that could do so many things and narrowing down? All the time. Before I give you the example, I have to say that Willow Garage and their team, they contributed significantly to the whole robotics industry. And I think we are reaping the, the fruits of what they planted many years back. And, and we have seen companies like Savio can, and fetch and many of the alarms from willow garage they went out to build amazing companies and and even ross the robotic operating system this was started in willow garage became the industry standard now for software development for robotic systems i have to give them the credit to many of the things that we we enjoy now in terms of examples again irobot is one example but i would say in a sense boston dynamics they started with the big dog and then the Atlas platform, which is a humanoid-like robot. And now Boston Dynamics have been trying to commercialize the Spot Mini platform, which is like a, a little dog. We have been seeing them getting into the construction space, manufacturing. I think there's a collective mind shift in robotics community now. I think the community has been traditionally populated with researchers and academics. And I think now we are seeing more and more business-oriented entrepreneurs or even technical folks who have been exposed to commercialization, have been through successful companies. So one example is the founders of Six River, which is, again, a warehousing robot, got recently acquired by an e-commerce company based in, in Canada for $450 million. 
six of our founders are actually ex-Kiva. The second generation founders. Exactly. So they lived it and they have been through it. They know what does it mean to build an actual product, not a prototype, and how to sell this product, how to get your first customer, how you get your second customer, how to give free of charge pilots and then paid pilots. And then limited kind of scale contracts. And how would you scale after that? How you build your service organization? How you build your deployments organization? These are all very practical. In my mind, these are company building projects, not product building exercise. Once you mm-hmm. find the product market fit, the challenge is actually on the other organization stuff that you need to develop. So I think that collectively, I am seeing maturing of the robotics community in terms of building robotics companies and scaling robotics companies. And just to add to that, last year, 2019, the total acquisition in robotics was close to, I'd say, eight plus billion, just in the the New England area. Companies like Cornelius, companies like Iris, both of them in the surgical robot space, collectively 6.8 billion. As I mentioned, Six River, Endeavor Robotics, which is the, the defense spinoff from iRobot, got acquired by Flare and so forth. So we have been seeing this maturity evident in terms of the acquisitions and exits that have been happening. What, what I found also really interesting is to see the variety of buyers, because you mentioned Six River Systems, and they've been acquired by an e-commerce company. And before them, Amazon bought Kiva, and Amazon also an e-commerce company. And for them, robotics became a strategic asset. Another example I really like, and I just had a recent conversation with Kosla about it, who invested in that company, is Blue River, Actech robotics company, got acquired by John Deere. Like who would expect John Deere to buy an advanced computer vision robotics company, but they spent $300 million on it. Yeah. In, in my role in mass robotics, I built the whole corporate partnership model from the ground up. And in this capacity, I met thousands of large corporates and interacted with lots of senior executives and kind of CEOs, CTOs, R&D folks, innovation leaders, and, and all of that. And I was amazed that almost... In all sectors I have seen, there is a robotics research or a robotics project going on in places like oil and gas, mining, biotech, construction, healthcare, heavy trucking, you name it. It was just fascinating to learn about their interest in different technologies from machine vision to mobile manipulation to AI and and all of that. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. In the mining industry, they've been using autonomous trucks for many years now and because it's on private premises. And you mentioned also Boston Dynamics and they're looking for application, I think, in uh, inspection robotics in oil and gas. Uh, and that's also because the, this whole built infrastructure needs maintenance and inspection. And True. most of that is very inefficiently done. We actually have a couple of companies in that field. One is a drone inspection robot called SkyGage, and they do a contact in- inspection. Uh, and in construction robotics, we have another one based in Norway called Rebartech, and they do automated assembly using robots of those reinforcement bars for concrete uh, buildings. So uh, it's really interesting to see those companies entering those different sectors. Yeah, for sure. I think the interest is definitely there. Some of those companies, they created their own venture arms. Some of them invest in funds. Others, they just do R&D and more of kind of innovation technology scouting. But it's not easy. It's not easy. And frankly speaking, bridging this gap between large corporates and startups, sometimes it's very challenging because you're trying to mix oil with, with water. 
those are very different worlds. I think we were, were very blessed in mass robotics to play a key role in, in being the facilitator between our 40 corporate partners and our large network of mm-hmm. startups. And it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort to basically do the translation as corporates they have different time frames it's much longer than what the startups have in mind uh, there is lots of issues around ip and signing ndas and uh, what to share what not to share while startups they want to move fast they don't have lots of cash they want to see results immediately they want to protect their ip so there is lots of translation that we have to work on we developed a whole startup engagement program for mitsubishi electric and I think this is probably one of our success stories and on how to build a program to basically bridge this gap. Bridging between corporates and startups is a, it's a huge challenge. And we've seen that uh, this, like if they engage too early, then the, the startup is not ready to, to respond. And if they engage too late, the startup might be already committed to other development timelines or roadmaps. We've talked a lot about the, the successes and the potential, but there's also a number of companies that recently uh, closed doors. And it's, I think it's interesting to look into what happened to them and what, why that happened. Rethink Robotics was the collaborative robots shut down. They had raised about $150 million. Jibo was doing a more kind of assistant robot, raised about $70 million. Recently got bought back by Entity Data, the Japanese company. Anki uh, wasn't sure what, if they wanted to be an AI company or a toy company. And my favorite company, Landroid, was doing a laundry folding robot for $10,000. They had raised close to $100 million. They had something that seemed to be working. So what do you make of those shutdowns? So when I was at MIT, the very simple kind of research question I I had was, what make or break a company? Why companies succeed and why they fail? And this is where I spend most of my time going through tons of research, going back all the way to the 60s and the 70s. And also uh, speaking with tons of companies and investors, it was both academic kind of research, literature review, but also in person and surveying existing companies. And my conviction, again, I am a systems guy. My conviction, it goes back to the whole emerging property. Success is an emerging property. So companies could fail for many reasons and they could succeed because of many other reasons. So is it the funding that make or break companies? Obviously, no. As you mentioned, Jeepu, Anki, Rethink Robotics, those were all well-funded companies. Is it the core team, the founding team? All those companies were founded by amazing people with extensive networks. Everyone was a celebrity in their own field and they had all the publicity, all the, the connections they made. Is it the market? I think the, there was a need. There was a market need. Jibo, they got thousands of pre-orders and they were planning to launch before uh, Amazon Echo and they missed the mark there. Rethink mm-hmm. Robotics, uh, I think they came in the right time and uh, Universal Robot, which was developing a competing product, basically, I think they started either in the same time or even after them and Rethink couldn't make it and Universal Robot became the market dominant. So again, it's not only the market. So what it is, it's much more subtle than that. And sometimes it has to do with the internal dynamics, the team dynamics, the product development. One of the things I found out in my study and research is something which is very subtle that we we don't speak a lot about in the startup world and, and entrepreneurship, which is 
how fast you are to respond to the market feedback, to basically internalize this feedback, improve your product as close as possible to this feedback, because you could change into something different, not exactly what the market meant. How fast you can change, and then how fast you can reintroduce this product or MVP to the market. I think that one of the hidden weapons of many successful companies is this speed of adaptation to the market. Uh, But how does that work with companies that have like such strong technical investment? You cannot lean startup your way out of a a, a robot application. So how do you do that in robotics? Lean startup and the whole lean approach and the MVP kind of strategy is quite helpful. You don't need to finish the product. You don't need to build the whole prototype, just a proof of concept, just a a mock-up prototype and get it out there. Speak with the, the potential users, the potential customers. Many times in robotics, we make the mistake of we get obsessed with the technology. We are geeks by definition. So we just close our labs. We develop the whole thing. And we don't want to go out and interact with the customers until we have something that is working close to perfection. And this is a grave mistake. This is a grave mistake. You want to keep the customers engaged in your product development. You want to get their feedback. Not too much, not too little, but you need to have this consistent feedback. And you want to speak with as many potential customers as you can because this is another kind of challenge in robotics is the vertical expertise is very important. And Again, I, I keep referring back to Kiva, the founder, the CEO of Kiva. He was not a roboticist. He was uh, a warehousing logistics consultant, but he knew about the need there and what logistics company need. And then he recruited technologists, roboticists, and together they built Kiva. They built the robot that the industry need. Now that's really interesting. Six River, they did the same kind of strategy. They started from what the market need. That's why it took Six River four years to exit. Can you imagine that? Believable. A full stack robotics company, hardware, software, they raised 45 million and they managed to exit in four years, generating 10x return on the funds raised. It's a massive success story. And so forth, surgical robots company. Those are not just technologists. Those are people from the healthcare, the medical space, and they go and recruit the technologists and, and the, the people that help them build the, um, the product. It's really interesting to hear that there's really different approaches coming from either the industry or the technology. If you can identify the right industry application as quickly as possible. And I, I remember re- reading about uh, Steve Blank's uh, Lean Launchpad program and also this application through the iCore program. One company that came out of it is Blue River Technology that initially was called Autonomo because they wanted to do kind of an autonomous lawnmower. And then they talked to golf courses and farmers, and they realized that nobody wanted an autonomous lawnmower at the time. What people, and particularly farmers, wanted was a way to get rid of weeds. They didn't even need the autonomy for that, because they, they were saying, look, we already have tractors, so we can just attach something to it. So it's funny that across the course of just a few weeks, talking with potential customers, they realized their initial name had to be entirely changed I'm a big fan of C. Blank's uh, work and, and his seminal work on the four stages of epiphany. This is, this is just amazing. And, and reading the book is different than practicing it because implementing this idea of there is nothing inside the, the office. You need to go out and speak to, to people. You need to speak to customers. It's not easy. 
because you need to think about the questions you want to ask. Because if you don't ask the right questions, you will get the wrong answers. You are totally right. And I highly recommend to for all the entrepreneurs on this podcast to, to check Steve Blank's uh, work on customer discovery. And it's definitely super important. When we're preparing, you're discussing the fact that in addition to being a platform for robotics companies, you're also advising and sourcing deals and doing due diligence for over 150 VCs. You're yep. also advising investment banks and PE funds and corporates, yep. the, the VC arm of corporate VCs, General Motors, Lockheed Martin. So what would be your advice to investors who are curious about robotics or would like to, to get active in the sector? My advice is robotics 10 years ago is different than now. The old mindset that robotics is capital intense, it takes forever to exit, it's super risky. I think this is all changed. Is robotics risky? Yes, it is risky, but I think it's risky as any venture investment. Software is risky. Is robotics capital intense? I think there are different kinds of robotics investment. There is the 100% software, like cybersecurity for robotics, like cloud robotics, AI, IoT as a complement to robotics. There's also the kind of pure hardware in terms of like components or sensors, which is not a full stack would be both software and hardware, which obviously is more capital intense. But does it take long time to exit? I think with the decreasing cost of sensors and motors and computing power and processors and all of that, and, and also lots of existing libraries of software and robotic operating system, the cost to develop a robotic system dramatically uh, decreased. Does it take long time? Again, as I mentioned, Six River exit in four years. Kiva, it didn't take them that long. And we have many examples of that. So we are seeing exits in pretty short time frame. In terms of returns, again, returns are super attractive. Kiva, this is a 40x exit. Autonomy, 23x. Iris, which is a medical robotics company, 8x. Six River, as I mentioned, is a 10x, all on the, the funds raised. We've seen the portfolio, some robotics companies get to market with one or $2 million only. And uh, it's really quite amazing. We have one robot in EdTech called Emmys that is uh, doing a robot to teach languages. We have another one, automated dry cleaning robot that's actually getting a lot of traction because of COVID because everything needs to be always uh, disinfected. And they got to market with less than a million dollars. It's really amazing. And then probably on the other end of the spectrum, you have those really expensive medical robots that require like very complex uh, testing and certification and FDA approvals. And uh, that's longer timeframes and higher cost. But uh, I totally agree that the robotics playbook has totally changed and that today's robotics companies are very different from the ones 10 years ago. So maybe to, to wrap up on the topic, what are your hopes or the most exciting things uh, that you see in uh, robotics? For the coming year or two, as you said, I think COVID, I mean, it's a devastating crisis all over the world. But I think in robotics, it just underscored the, the importance of robotic systems and the need for them. And, and also from the kind of public perception, the whole narrative around like robots will take away jobs, which is, again, mm -hmm. it's a little bit silly because this has been happening since the start of history. You have the kind of the invention of the wheel and then the mechanical systems mm. and then the engines yeah. lots of it's just a cycle it's the way things goes and you cannot stop it because someone else will employ it we, we went from robots will take your job to robots are actually the only ones keeping the lights on when everybody's confined at home and can't work and a lot of tasks can't be performed anymore 
Yes, exactly. So it just underscored the value of robots, uh, as you said, in disinfecting hospitals, uh, schools, corporates, delivery, robots uh, running in warehouses, running factories, all, all these kind of applications. I think that we will see a continuous growth in robotics investment, robotics adoption. In, in lots of verticals, as you mentioned, but in particular healthcare, of course. I hope and I do believe that we will see more and more diversity and inclusion in the robotics community. Robotics uh, historically have been a white male-dominated space, but we have amazing female roboticists, people of color, black entrepreneurs in robotics, immigrants. I myself, I am an immigrant. I consider myself a person of color. I think we need more diversity because as the experiment that was done in AI and how the AI systems that we've been developing are biased, Mm. I think diversity and inclusion is very important because robotics and AI will be in everything that touch our lives. And if we don't start from now, creating this diverse and inclusion kind of culture in in robotics, I think we will end up with some scary systems down the road. So I hope to see more of that. But yeah, I I think there will be lots of consolidation. I think we are stepping into consolidation, especially in manufacturing, advanced manufacturing and logistics warehousing. So I I expect companies going out to business, large companies acquiring other players. In other sectors like mining, construction, healthcare, maybe agriculture, I think uh, we will continue to see more players coming in. It's not yet at the uh, consolidation stage. So this is what's happening. And for all the investors on the podcast, I think it's an exceptional time to invest because as many of the successful uh, startups that we have now were formed during the last downturn. 2008. So now is the time because this is a good test for the good and the mediocre companies out there. And if you do the right bets, you will end up with huge returns. We are always open and happy to collaborate, help advise, source uh, deals, uh, help on due diligence. Lots of efforts have been going on around raising funds and investing funds in in robotics and AI. I'd be happy to help and and support as I have been helping and supporting you, Ben, and the amazing work that you have been doing. And uh, yeah, amazing stuff is coming. Exciting times ahead. I totally agree that... uh... The more people we get involved uh, from the kids in school on the, the whole diversity of, of genders, on the races, on the nationalities. On the, and I think another aspect is that with a lot of those technology breaks on the coding of software becoming also more and more accessible, yeah. there will be many more applications of robotics that will become viable. Okay, Fadi, thanks a lot for your insights. And uh, we'll share your contacts for people who want to get in touch with you. I'm definitely looking forward uh, to the upcoming activities of Mass Robotics. I know you have a lot of seminars and events coming up. Thank you, Ben. It has been a real pleasure to be with you today. And I appreciate all the amazing work that you're doing in the team for the deep tech and tough tech companies. Subscribe now for future episodes. Follow us on Twitter at Lab2Market and SOSV or visit our other podcasts, Designing Science on Biology and China Startup Pulse on Asia Cross-Border Internet.